Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 125, the Children's Art Center. Hi, I'm Nikki. And I'm Jake. This week, we're talking about the book The Little Glass Treasure House with artist and author Julia Glottfelter. The Children's Art Center was incorporated in 1914 under the direction of Fitzroy Carrington, curator of prints at the Museum of Fine Arts. When the building was completed in 1918 on Rutland Street in Boston's South End, it became the first art museum for children in the world. In 1959, the organization merged with four settlement houses to become United South End Settlements. Julia taught in the Vacation Arts Program at USCS in 2017, and during that time she researched the history of the building, the evolution of its programs, and the people who brought the space to life. Her recent book, The Little Glass Treasure House, narrates the story through the eyes of Charlotte Dempsey, who directed the center from 1930 to 1971. But before we chat with Julia, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club pick and our upcoming historical event. Our pick for the Boston Book Club this week is The Rascal King, The Life and Times of James Michael Curley by Jack Beatty. One of the most colorful figures in Massachusetts politics in the first half of the 20th century, Curley served four terms as Democratic mayor of Boston, and during part of one of those terms, he was in prison. He served a single term as governor of Massachusetts, characterized by Beatty as a disaster mitigated only by moments of farce for his free spending and corruption. He also served two terms in the U.S. House of Representatives and one term in the State House of Representatives. According to the Harvard Crimson, in his debut, Curley swept the city with a wave of reform that left his critics gasping. He built schools, playgrounds and beaches. He hired new doctors for the city hospital. He extended the transit system and pulled down old elevated lines, making thousands of jobs. When the banks in Boston refused to lend him money for his spending spree, he bolted traditions and borrowed from banks all over the country. Of course, he was collecting graft, raising taxes, and lining his pockets every step of the way. Amazon describes Beatty's book. Twice jailed while serving in office, yet a champion of the people, builder of schools, yet a shameless grafter, James Michael Curley was the stuff of legend long before his life became fiction in Edwin O'Connor's classic novel, The Last Hurrah. As mayor of Boston, as a United States congressman, and as governor of Massachusetts, Curley rose from the slums of South Boston in a career extending from the progressive era of Teddy Roosevelt to the ascendancy of the Kennedy sons. While Curley lived, he represented both the triumph of Irish America and the birth of divisive politics of ethnic and racial polarization. When he died, over one million mourners turned out to pay their respects in the largest wake Boston had ever seen. Nominated for a National Book Critics Circle Award in biography, Beatty's spellbinding story of the Kingfish of Massachusetts is also an epic of his city, its immigrant people, and its turbulent times. It is simply biography at its best. The moral complexities of Curley's career are a lot to take in. As the Mighty Mighty Boston's put it, You'll have to draw your own conclusions. We'll include a link to purchase the book in this week's show notes. 
And for our upcoming event this week, we're featuring William Dawes' Secret, a talk by J.L. Bell. The event's described as such. William Dawes Jr. is known today only as the other rider who carried news of the British Army's march to Lexington in April of 1775. Like the more famous Paul Revere, Dawes was deeply involved in the Patriot movement for years before and after that date. This talk reveals Dawes the militia organizer, the fashion icon, even the arms smuggler whose secret mission for the Patriots Committee of Safety helped bring on the Revolutionary War. The speaker will be J.L. Bell, who's the author of The Road to Concord, How Four Stolen Cannon Ignited the Revolutionary War. He maintains the Boston1775.net website, offering daily helpings of history, analysis, and unabashed gossip about the revolution in New England. Frequent listeners will remember him as our guest on episode 100. The event's co-sponsored by the Roxbury Historical Society, the Jamaica Plain Historical Society, and the Unitarian Universalist Urban Ministry. We'll have a link to more information in this week's show notes. And now it's time for this week's main topic. In the early 20th century, the MFA did not offer programming for children and welcome them into the museum as it does today. Fitzroy Carrington, curator of Prince, was a bit ahead of his time in his belief that children would enjoy and benefit from exposure to fine art. Northeastern University Archives, which houses the archives for United South End Settlements and the Children's Art Center, describes the process by which the center was created. In 1913, Carrington arranged an exhibition at the Museum of Fine Arts of prints of interest to children. After this successful exhibition, he worked towards establishing, as he described, a little museum wherein could be shown works of art, few in number, of a high order of merit, which, by their subject and beauty, would appeal to children, and incidentally, serve as an appropriate and inspirational background for classes in design, storytelling, and kindred activities. He originally envisioned a group of museums so that children all over the city could experience fine art firsthand. In 1915, the Settlements Museum Association was formed in Massachusetts. The Children's Art Center evolved from meetings of this association and with the financial assistance of Carrington's friends. The Art Center opened in May of 1918, and it soon became an essential part of the community and a neighborhood tradition. Artist and newly published author Julia Glatfelter is joining us this week to discuss her children's book, The Little Glass Treasure House, which explores Charlotte Dempsey's 40-year career at the Children's Art Center. Julia, can you first just introduce yourself and explain your connection to United South and Settlements and the Children's Art Center? Yes, so in the summer of 2017, I took on the position of vacation arts teacher at the Children's Arts Center. Children's Arts Center is a building um, among many properties owned by USES, and I was honored to be under the leadership of Melissa Buckley, the then director. And alongside other co-teachers, we instructed um, on a two-week schedule uh, about three dozen children throughout the whole summer. And um, I was honored to have the Children's Art Center as designated as my classroom. And it was in that space that I found many, many stories that had never been told. And I sought to bring to life those stories. And in them, I found a woman who I came to admire, Charlotte Dempsey. And um, long story short, I've completed a book on her story and the story of the Children's Art Center as we know it. 
So Charlotte became the director of the Children's Art Center in 1930. Um, what are some of the changes that she made to the programming? Yeah, she uh, was quite revolutionary for her time. Previously, the Children's Art Center had been opened as, at then at the time, the first museum in um, in the world, they claim. I don't necessarily disagree, but it's uh, a lot. It's a big claim. claim. It's a big yeah. claim. <laughs> I sometimes wonder if it was primarily for marketing. But certainly in the United States, the only museum designed for children at, as they had known it at that time. And their kind of descriptors for that were the, uh, the artwork that came into the space was with the child audience in mind. Artwork was hung at a child's height, very low on the wall. And actually, the artwork was brought in knowing that it would be touched by little hands. Children were able to explore the materials and sculptures on tables. They were able to touch and uh, stroke paintings and drawings that were displayed on the walls. Um, and it was, there had never been anything like it. But with that, you know, the credibility of the artworks that were coming from the Boston Museum of Fine Arts across town, from the Athenaeum, from these incredible institutions of art, um, children were only able to come into the space and see, to touch, use their senses, and draw with pencil on paper. It was, when Charlotte came, there had never been color used in the space. Not, pencil was the only medium allowed. And Charlotte came in and thought, what a pity that children aren't able to explore materials that they have not been exposed to prior and or express themselves in ways that they'd never been pushed to. And so Charlotte did away with uh, copying artworks as a sole means of art making. She encouraged children to make what um, was embodied in in their hearts and their minds um, and to put on paper and through multiple mediums expressions of things that were in their mind. And so that was the first time that that had ever happened. And she just brought with her this explosion of color and energy and innovation. And and I'll also just add, she was really countercultural in a time of segregation. From the beginning and day one, her classroom was integrated racially. And um, children of multiple creeds and language and race sat beside one another and shared space and made beautiful things. Now, that's an interesting point you brought up. Do do you have a sense of who was invited to the Children's Art Center? Was it people, children immediately from the South End neighborhood? Or do you have a sense of whether it was from a broader area across Boston? It was absolutely advertised within the South End. And from the early stages, there was no admittance fee. So children would finish school and walk right over to the Children's Art Center on Rutland Street. It was open to all children and adults. Many times whole families would come to enjoy the exhibits and participate in art making. But it was specifically ages 6 through 18 that the classes were advertised for. And so it was kind of a, a modern-day aftercare program um, with very little uh, limitations at first. And it was certainly open to as far-reaching um, communities as, as children could come and make it to. And were you able to learn much about Charlotte's background and you know how she came to this position? You know, it, it took me a year to find that out. Charlotte is a very hard woman to track down. She had two siblings. Both of them had passed away prior to my research. And um, what I do know is that her parents immigrated from Ireland in the late uh, 19th century. And Charlotte, she herself was born and raised in Boston, but she didn't take on this position until she was in her mid-30s. 
And so prior to that, she had been a student at the Massachusetts College of Art and Design. There was a woman uh, by the name of Professor Perkins. She was a professor at the Massachusetts College of Art and Design, but she also was a drawing instructor at the Children's Art Center, very part-time. And once it became known that a full-time director was needed, she went ahead and called her previous student, Charlotte Dempsey. Charlotte, we need you. This position is, is made for you. I know your experience with children. I know that you um, are, she had initiated multiple sketching trips with children in her neighborhood across town. Um, she was a, an artist, but she was also inviting young people into her practice. And so by her mid thirties, it was when she got that call and she accepted the opportunity to become the full-time director. You described her as being, you know, countercultural and like really ahead of her time. I feel like the fact that in her mid-30s, she had not yet married and was seeking full-time employment is pretty indicative that she was not a run-of-the-mill person. No, and honestly, that was the other golden nugget of this whole research for me personally, was discovering that Charlotte never married. And it was year after year that of course, she was always the director. She was the director for nearly 40 years, but she always had an assistant. And in the back of my mind for a year and a half, that has always been my question was, how did she do this? And how did she do it for this long? Because all of these other assistants were coming in with a track record of a year to two years maximum. And it was until I finally went to the archives at the Northeastern's library and saw the annual reports that she had herself pulled out of the typewriter. And every year if not every other year, she would thank the the director, the assistant director at the time and say, so thank you so much for your service. So-and-so um, has recently gotten married and she needs to now go and make a home. Thank you so much. She will now be departing uh, employment at the Children's Arts Center. And so it was these women who would dedicate a short amount of time until they became married and would have other responsibilities. But Charlotte never did get married. So she never had those societal responsibilities that other women might have. And in a report um, in the 50s, she admitted in her own writing that the, I gave, I lost my life to the art center willingly because of the children of the South End. Now, this might be something that you wouldn't come across in, in archival research, but do you have any sense of Charlotte as a, as a younger woman or as a child, what in her background might have made her that way? I don't. And it's something that I really hope that as the book comes out, that some others in the crowd might raise their hand and say they knew her or um, that they could just make some some connections that I was unable to see. I think the closest I came was I had the pleasure of interviewing Nick Haddad. He was a previous student of the Children's Art Center. He attended for uh, nearly 10 years. And he sort of blew my mind because it was a year into my own research. And he admitted, I didn't really prefer Miss Dempsey. <laughs> he said, I always loved Miss Pat. It was Miss Pat who Nick described as much more child-centered, much more friendly and open. And even just, you know, her title of Miss Pat that she wanted and desired to be called by her first name. Whereas Miss Dempsey, Nick said, was very formal. Um, she was very focused. He said she was very serious, very serious about her work. And I think it did take a, an amount of taking this whole thing very seriously in order to create what she did in such a professional manner in the way that she did. So previous to the, her 30s, I, it's all guesswork. And I'd love for someone to fill in the blanks for me. 
it sounds like you're in a great position to have that person come forward now. Absolutely. Julia, can you tell us a little more about the connections that Charlotte developed with other museums and classrooms around the world? Definitely. Uh, Charlotte was, I think, a lifetime learner because she was constantly writing and engaging with art teachers all around the globe. Her children's, uh, her, her students' work had the opportunity to tour throughout kind of her tenure at the Children's Art Center in over 30 countries. In the book that I created, I have a page dedicated to an exhibition that was hosted in Korea. There was a teacher who was receiving letters from Charlotte, and they were able to exchange artwork. So Charlotte shipped off um, some a good representation of her students' work to Korea for an international exhibition, and the Korean students uh, sent their work to be shown in the Children's Art Center. And this was a very common exchange, but it was just mind-boggling because no one asked Charlotte to do this, but this was an initiative that she took. And I think it was out of this desire to allow the children of the South End to see more than just their their streets and their blocks and their neighborhood, but to have their minds expanded and have a larger understanding of the world. And for her to see children as young as six needing to experience that kind of larger than life (laughs) um, experience was just remarkable. But it, it that's what drove her to write to teachers all around the globe. And um, there were multiple international exhibitions. And just three years after she began at the Children's Art Center, she actually went to the Louvre. The director of the painting department at the Louvre contacted Charlotte and said, what a remarkable job you're doing. Please come and share what your children are creating because what you're doing is, uh, there's never been anything like it. You know, we know this is among one of the first children's museums in the world. Please come and share what you've done. And so she did. Um, I was able to to look at the manifesto of the the ship that she had gotten on to go to Europe um, in census records and uh, just incredible. She was so devoted and she was also devoted to allowing her children to have opportunity uh, to engage with people who, who lived a lot different than them in order to expand their world. Yeah, there's nothing like being blessed by the Louvre to give you the capital <laughs> S, capital A, serious art credentials. Can you believe it? it? Can that's you not really it? something that I would have connected with the, the Children's Arts Center. I always thought of it as an after-school program, a, a enrichment program, but it also had that sort of stamp of serious art. Yes. Aren't you impressed enough that the MFA was giving on loan some of their artworks? I mean, come on. But to be able to travel to these other parts of the globe um, and also to in a sense, send her children to other parts of the globe, whereas their art could speak to children of other cultures and vice versa. I'll say, too, what was remarkable is that there were two uh, permanent collections that the Children's Art Center did manage. There was a collection of Egyptian artifacts and also of Native American artifacts. And under kind of Charlotte's jurisdiction, I just see her as a woman who managed so much, but she was also given a whole lot of responsibility from outside institutions. And so I'm not positive on the the beginning stages of how that collection came to be, but she oversaw those exhibitions in the center and it created a lot of profit because she was able to send them out on loan uh, for local exhibitions, for uh, domestic, larger, you know, farther domestic uh, exhibitions. Um, But it was just another slice of allowing her students at the time to touch and see and experience other cultures in a really meaningful way. 
At one point, I heard that the Children's Art Center had a John Singer Sargent sketch in its possession. Do you know how that may have come to be? I'm quite sure that it was Isabel Stewart Gardner who gave that to the center. Because there's actually, it took me um, some digging to discover this, but there's this really beautiful memory of Isabel Stewart Gardner. Of course, her home was a home at one time, and she did live there. And she invited Charlotte, uh, the, the children and the parents at the time, to come and visit her in her home to have tea with her and to explore the gardens. And they did. And among that crowd was Alan Rowan Critt, who we all know now, but um, it was just those cultural experiences that Charlotte jumped at. Um, but Isabel Stewart Gardner was just another patron of the Children's Art Center, which brought so much more meaning and richness because her collections were are infamous. And so she had the chance to share and give out on loan some of her own objects for children to enjoy and make work from. And for those of us who might not know who that is, that was Alan... Rowan Critt. He is an African-American painter. Um, he actually, Nikki, you may be able to help me out, but he passed away just a few years now. Um, but his work is at multiple Smithsonian's in Washington, D.C. And a lot of his work is vibrant, rich portrait work depicting African-American life, specifically in Boston. And it was uh, here that he was born and raised. So I'm curious to hear a little bit more about how this book came to be. Can you tell us, first of all, what led you to the point of deciding that you had a, a book and then specifically a children's book in mind? Gosh, well, honestly, there is credit due to so many people. And I know everyone says that, but I would not be holding this book if it were not for my then co-teachers, Meredith Callis, Julia Heinzman, Amelia Forsyth. Um, they were my co-teachers who looked over my shoulder while I was making paintings of the space and said, hey, you really need to make a, this into a book. And it was on, <laughs> through that summer in 2017, we as a staff would go out to tacos at El Centro. I highly recommend to anyone in Boston to go to El Centro in the South End. I second that. So yummy. And um, it was there really that the idea was conceived because to be quite frank, um, we all came into the Children's Arts Center courtyard and we felt the history that had been before. The previous hundred years was was tangible, um, was palpable in the the ivy, the bricks, the air, as another uh, current board member had said years ago, it's it's tangible and it's um, it's undeniable to be able to walk in that space and not recognize what had come before. But it also raises a lot of questions. And so when you come into the beautiful art center and you look around and you, as a teacher, um, you know, you're, you're given the desk that many teachers had before. You're given the space with um, histories and memories and leftover artifacts, and you can't help but ignore the children and teachers who had come before you. So let me ask this. You come to a point where you feel this very tangible sense of the history of the space, the building, the courtyard, the, the space that's been inhabited by all these other teachers and, and the children they work with. And you have all these questions about what be came before. How do you go about finding the answers to those questions? What's the research process for a book like this look like? So I started asking questions. I started interviewing those right there on the property. My colleagues, individuals at USCS on staff who'd been there much longer than I. And it um, led me to understand that there was actually a current exhibit 
at Northeastern's library on the United South and Settlements. So I went there after work one day and found all of these gorgeous pictures I had never seen of my classroom. And I went inside and I asked the archivists to help me out and they opened me up to boxes and boxes of books I never knew existed. And that propelled a very hesitant road <laughs> that I slowly tiptoed on because I think I knew deep down that I was creating a book, but I was not willing to admit it because that meant I'd have to follow through. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll just say to anyone who is on a long-term project or is thinking about writing a book, start telling people because accountability is your best friend. And it was those initial conversations that plunged me into this project but it was also telling the archivist, hi, my name is Julia. Yes, I'm writing a book. I need your help. And starting to call people who other people had referred me to. And so, um, you know, it was the archives, it was the beauty that was archived there that encouraged me to keep going, but it was also just the continuous, endless line of referrals. And so the wonderful uh, Molly Brown, who was on the archival staff at Northeastern, Um, She referred me to other people in the history who referred me to others. And it just became this endless cycle of sitting before individuals who had a lot more information than me and writing as much as I could to understand what it means to write a book, what the heck an ISBN even means, what's the benefits of self-publishing versus going through numerous agents to uh, get published by professionals. Um, I just had lists and lists of questions that... I think I, I had to be I had to get to a point where I was brave enough to ask them, and um, I'm very glad I did. So, for our listeners, can you explain what does it mean to self-publish your book rather than going through a commercial publisher? I think I soon learned that before I could even get as far as I had on my own, I would need to restart and apply um, to various publishers. and forego some of my artistic freedom in order to say, hey, this is my idea. What do you think? Please guide me. And maybe six six months down the road, someone might reach out to me and uh, want to expand on my concept further in their own way. But knowing that uh, the publishing route, there, it was a much more collaborative effort with individuals who you need to kind of get caught up to speed on your project. I I chose to personally self-publish because I'd had the the resources, the energy, the movement in my project already to make this thing happen. And so that's definitely not selling the publishing route for individuals who are listening. (laughs) I don't mean that it's not the route for you, but for this specific creative visual project um, that already had a lot of individuals in the process, I thought that self-publishing was the most appropriate route. But it, it doesn't mean that you have to rely on or wait for somebody else's approval of your project. Like, you can have a good idea and research it and write it and bring it to the bookshelf. Yes, absolutely. And so what you forego when you're self-publishing is um, the automatic guarantee that your book is going to be in cert- on certain bookshelves. And so that's research I've needed to do. I've needed to seek out what it means to get an ISBN number. I've needed to seek out how to register my book alongside of that. I've needed to reach out personally to booksellers and say, hey, I'm so-and-so. Will you look at my ISBN? Would you consider selling my book? And talk about all the pricing one-on-one. Those are all things that a publisher would do for you, which Mm -hmm. is 
glorious, but they also will most likely take 80% of your profit, which is difficult. Less glorious. <laughs> yeah, less, less glorious. glorious. <laughs> it sounds like you also benefited from some of the skills, some of your art skills in applying those to sort of the tasks involved mm-hmm. in getting a book ready for publishing. Is that right? Yes, I did. I did. And uh, I studied art education at Gordon College, but I'm very grateful for the multidimensional education that they offer because I was able to apprentice under Tim Ferguson Souter at a design firm. And in that uh, set of responsibilities, was able to learn the design skills I applied to this book. Um, But through many other professors and encouragement there while uh, in my program, I learned a lot of skills that I applied here. Um, Yeah, certainly. Julia, can you tell us where the title came from? Yes, I would love to. (laughs) It really speaks to the evolution of the project because from the beginning, I was enamored with this building. And, you know, the little glass treasure house was what the children called it in the 30s and 40s. And so it has a lot of, uh, I think it will have a lot of rich memory for older readers um, who come upon this book. From the beginning, I wanted to create a book about this beautiful historic building. But also from the beginning, I was terrified to make this book about Charlotte because I did not in any way want to misrepresent her. And for a long time, I didn't have enough information on her. But it was until three visits, <laughs> three very long visits to the archives, I should have slept over there, I really should have, um, that I came to hear and learn her voice and to read her eloquent, beautiful musings that were cover pages on annual reports about her proudest, proudest moments and her deepest sorrows. And I think by my third visit, I came to know her. And uh, I remember sitting on the train, um, going out of Boston to visit a friend on the North Shore, and I I made myself sit down um, and write a letter to the children of the South End from Charlotte. And I started crying. (laughs) I started crying. I tried to, like, you know, embody her in every sense and just think, what would Charlotte want to say now? And that... In, you know, a matter of a 40-second train ride, uh, I I changed the entire book. Um, I had a complete book in September of 2018, and after I went to the archives that month, um, I I basically went back to, to square one and started over because I knew that this book needed to be about her. So, Julia, we have not yet touched upon the artwork, really, for this book. I mean, the artwork is extraordinary. And I do want to emphasize to our listeners that uh, while this is written to be a children's book, like it is a beautiful piece of artwork and adults should absolutely buy it and will love it just as much. Um, So can you, you know, for those who obviously haven't seen it yet, who are listening, can you describe, you know, visually what the style is and how the artwork came together? A big pivot that I made was uh, I had I had made about twenty paintings to insert into this work, and initially I did, um, but I think I stepped back and was able to realize that children would misinterpret my paintings for child paintings made by children of the art center, and I just wanted to remove all confusion, and so I sought after 
finding more archival photos and artifacts and correspondence to insert into the images. And so what you have, once you see the book, is an infusion of photographs of the space, archival photos, and children's artwork. There are, I believe, three, I think that's where I landed on, three paintings of my own in the book, just to slightly insert myself and all of the effort that I put in. Um, but I really wanted to capture and um, capitalize on the, the beautiful images that children made throughout the decades. One challenge I ran into was there were not an enormous amount of children's artworks that were archived, but on top of that, the artifacts that were there were scans and they were in black and white. And so that was a, a difficulty that I had to overcome um, and honestly just deal with because it was worth inserting a few black and white images. But most of the images you see are overtaken by uh, what appears to be cutouts of archival photos. I tried to make it look um, just to put the children and the teachers at the center. And so it's a bit of a collage style, certainly mixed media. There's some overlays of color and art supplies and old newspaper clippings that are more informative for the text. Um, but I just wanted it to be a focus on who was there and what they made. Julia, is there anything you found in your research um, that you could share with us that will, you know, give our listeners a, a glimpse into Charlotte's personality and her insight? Definitely. I There was one, <laughs> one specific quotation I would love to share. It came out of the 1940s. Uh, reading her, her writings over the years, there was a very fascinating turn in tone. In the 1940s, she was clearly um, very heavy and very overwhelmed with the war years and how that was impacting the country and potentially the psyche of children. I mean, she was really devastated over the impact that children might have in this time. Um, meanwhile, previous uh, students were coming in through the gate. Old army men from the war were re-entering Boston and coming straight to the Children's Art Center. And she uh, shared about memories of running to the gate and welcoming these old artists. And they said that they had missed her and had missed the center. Just beautiful. But also in this time, um, I think she wrote a bit of a mission statement that I'd love to share. So this is from the annual report in 1940. She said, the Children's Art Center continues to be an oasis in a beauty barren area, since it offers to young people a place where they may observe and create beauty and thus open their eyes to see the stars and not the mud. Dingy brick buildings set in crowded streets, debris-laden alleys and human derelicts are ever before their gaze, but a child is soft clay, and his eyes can be trained to see the patterns of sunlight and colorful autumn leaves, the jewels of light and color left on bare tree limbs by the rain, and the beauty of snowflakes lazily drifting down to blanket the ugly places and transform even an old ash barrel into a thing of fantasy. Hence in there he finds freedom from his depressed spirit. What was the description of the South End as a beauty barren place? Is that what she said? Yes, yeah. That really points out the difference between the South End today and the South End at the time when the Children's Art Center was created Lots of buildings were falling down and uh, lots of affordable housing projects were deemed unlivable. But at this is the time when the children were still living in them. And so I just I really can't imagine the Children's Art Center as it stands um, amidst homes that she described. 
I can only imagine it really would have been like, I say in the book, it's like stepping through a portal. I mean, you're stepping into this green courtyard, a garden at the time that children assisted with maintaining. And then you come in and you're, you enter through five French doors that open up like windows to fresh Boston air. And it's a place just for children, a place to call their own. So Julia, do you have any events coming up around the launch of the book? Yes. During the first week of April, uh, the first event is Tuesday, April 2nd. The South End Library is hosting a book launch. So at 6.30, there will be a storytelling, a short presentation, and art activities for artists of all ages. On Thursday of that week, Thursday, April 4th, there is the South End Authors Book Festival. That's at Tent City on Dartmouth Street. That's between 4 and 8 p.m. And then my third and final event during that that time frame is on um, Monday, April 6th. I'll be at the South End Historical Society giving more of a lecture on my uh, my time and research with the material. And at that lesson, I'm sorry, that lecture is called Charlotte's Legacy, Lessons on Innovative Art Education. And it will be another opportunity to... Uh, receive signed copies and engage with me. I'd love to share more about my my research. And I'm especially excited for that event to just share with other educators the innovative impact that Charlotte uh, created out of thin air, let's be honest. So I'm excited to see anyone who's able to come to those three events. And each of those, the book will be for sale. And after that, the book will continue to be for sale online at the southendbookstore.com. You can continue to... Uh, Purchase the book online there, and soon after, it will be in small bookstores in Boston. I'm excited to share those locations soon. And for anybody who can't make it out to one of those three events, what's the best way to keep up with your work online or to to follow you on social? Well, this is my first book, and I'm not sure there will be another, let's be honest. (laughs) Um, But (laughs) uh, my artist website is just my first and last name, juliaglatfelter.com. And I also have an Instagram at juliaglatfelter, very straightforward. Um, But certainly uh, excited to engage with those who want to follow my work afterward. I'm not sure what I'll be pursuing next, but I'm honestly excited to see instead where the book takes me. Um, And and just a short kind of footnote within the book is an opportunity for anyone who's been impacted by this story, by people who um, some of these memories or images trigger old memories and images of yours from your childhood and history, potentially at the in the South End, I would love to hear those stories. And so I've created an account called CAC, as in Children's Art Center Testimonials, CAC Testimonials at gmail.com. I would love to hear your stories. I would love to add to this plethora of research that I've been doing just to continue to compile ideas and um, continue to help this story live on. Julia, thank you so much for joining us this week. And uh, I look forward to receiving my copy of the book. And uh, I wish you a week of fruitful sales. Thank you both so much, Jake and Nikki. I really appreciate your time. To learn more about the Children's Art Center and Julia's book, The Little Glass Treasure House, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 125. We'll link to information about how to purchase the book, Julia's upcoming events, and the Children's Art Center feature at the Northeastern University Archives. And of course, we'll have links to information about our upcoming event and The Rascal King, this week's Boston Book Club pick. 
Before we sign off, we need to say a big thank you to Georgia and Mariana, our latest supporters on Patreon. We love that podcasts are free to listen to, but that doesn't mean they're free to produce. Our monthly expenses include our web hosting and security, online audio tools to clean up our recordings, and the service that hosts our podcast feed. Becoming a monthly supporter helps us offset those costs, and there are special perks at the $2, $5, and $10 a month levels. If you want to help us out, just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory, or go to hubhistory.com and click on the support us link. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. You can call and leave a voicemail at 617-383-9255, and we might play it on the show. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on this site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please think about writing us a brief review. It's one of the best ways to help others discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next time to talk about a 20th century museum heist that was considered the largest art theft in the world. But we won't be talking about the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum.